0: And we also take your questions and comments on Facebook and Twitter at Tube City Online. McKeesport native John Hare died June 21, 2015, at the age of 84. A graduate of McKeesport High School and Penn State University, Hare was a veteran of the U.S. Army. He began his long career as a journalist with the United Press in 1956. He also appeared on WQED television, but he may be best known for his work with Business Week magazine, first as a reporter and then as an editor. His biggest legacy, however, may be his books about the Mon Valley, including his 1988 classic about the collapse of the American steel industry called And the Wolf Finally Came, as well as a 2009 novel set in McKeesport entitled Monongahela Dusk. In 2009, Hare delivered the Founders Day address at the McKeesport Regional History and Heritage Center, and I was there to tape his remarks. One note of apology, the sound quality of this broadcast is not up to our usual standard. But with John Harris passing, I thought it was important and a tribute to hear these remarks by him in his own words.
1: So, I was invited to give a Founder's Day address, presumably something about McKeesport. And uh, I have to say that for many years, on each trip back to McKeesport, I would drive downtown and park on Fifth Avenue, several doors west of Evans Avenue. From that vantage point, I could view the top of a three-story building extending from Fifth Avenue at Hazel Street to Lyle Boulevard. So from that vantage point on Fifth Avenue, I would look up and at the top of, just below the roof of the 3rd three-story building, there was painted in big black letters, John P. Her Beer Distributor. That was my father. He owned the building and operated a beer distributorship on the first floor of 1227 Fifth Avenue. For most of the 1940s he sold the business in 1948 when he went into the hotel business in McKeesport but his name remained there on the side of that building for more than a half century until the building was torn down a few years ago the space it occupied is now a UPMC parking lot my father died in 1949 and I moved away from McKeesport in 1955 but still his name remained on that building decade after decade as if the city would not let him go. By extension, perhaps it would not let me go because here I am in my 70s and still writing about McKeesport. I've returned many times over the past 50 years to visit relatives or to do research or books and articles. My mother lived in White Oak for many years before she died in 1991, and my sister Lynn still lives there. Even so, I would not claim to understand or know much about the McKeesport of today. For example, last July, I was saddened to read in Jason Togier's uh, Tube City Almanac the following comment by a resident who had had daily trouble in his neighborhood. Quote, we are essentially giving up on McKeesport as a viable place to live and raise a family. End quote. I express my sympathies to that person and best wishes to those of you who stay and try to resist the effects of blight and decay. Beyond that, I can only retreat to the past and say it wasn't like that when I was growing up, first at the corner of Gover and Sumac for six or seven years, and then for several years in White Oak, and finally as a young man driving my dad's beer trucks on home deliveries throughout the city. The subject of my talk, Mark Connery, is by far McKeesport's most famous literary alumnus, having won the Pulitzer Prize for Drama in 1930 for his play, The Green Pasture. I'd like to tell you a bit about his life and career, which have some significance for McKeesport, and then I'll present an urban mystery of sorts and tell you how I stumbled into into a solution. Connolly was born in 1890 in McKeesport and grew up in a hotel run by his father, P.J. Connolly. The elder Conley had worked in the theater for several years as an actor and stage manager before settling in McKeesport. In those days around the turn of the century, McKeesport was actually an entertainment center of, some of sorts. Opera singers, actors, vaudeville performers, entertainers of all kinds came to town to perform at places like White's Opera House, in street carnivals and circuses and other places. Many had known P.J. Connolly professionally and stayed at the Hotel White, his hotel. Among those lodgers were several black performers whom Connolly had worked with on the national stage. It appears, short of evidence otherwise, that the Hotel White was the first integrated business and public place in McKeesport. This policy, unfortunately, lasted only as long as the Hotel White. But young Mark Connolly, growing up in this atmosphere, fell in love with the theater, and began staging his own dramas before the age of 10. When P.J. Connolly died in 1902, his wife Mabel took over management of the hotel. She sent Mark to a private school in Little Washington for the next several years. In 1907, she built or began began building a new hotel where the White stood, but the economic panic or recession of 1908 forced her to sell the business. Mark, then 17 or 18, began working as a newspaper reporter in Pittsburgh. He and Mabel, his mother, moved into an apartment near Forbes field. And for the rest of her life, Mark took care of her. Eventually, Mark worked his way to New York and grubbed around for years at various writing jobs involving the theatrical business. He came to know George S. Kaufman, a theater critic, who was trying to break in as a playwright. Starting in 1921, the two men collaborated on several more or less successful stage comedies, including Dulcie, Merchant of the Movies, and Beggar on Horseback. None of those names, I'm sure, ring a bell with very many of you. I know they didn't with me, although vaguely I seem to remember something about uh, Beggar on Horseback. Mark settled comfortably into show business. A famed raconteur and teller of funny stories, he was one of the Algonquin wits that group of writers and entertainers who hung out at, the, at New York's Algonquin Hotel in the 1920s. One friend commented that Mark could be out only by George Bernard Shaw, that's saying something. He paled around with people like Alexander Wolcott, Robert Benchley, Dorothy Parker, Haywood Hale-Brun, Hale-Brun and many other literary people.
0: You're listening to a 2009 speech by author and historian John Hare, delivered at McKeesport Heritage Center. Hare died June 21st at the age
2: of 84. Support for this broadcast comes in part from the McKeesport Hospital Foundation, celebrating 36 years of supporting community health programs and services for you and your family. The foundation works with UPMC McKeesport as well as through the Mon River Fleet Partnerships in Braddock, Clairton, Duquesne, and McKeesport. If you would like to make a donation to the McKeesport Hospital Foundation or find out more about it, visit mckhospitalfoundation.com or call 412-664-2590
0: you're listening to two rivers 30 minutes support comes from the readers of tubecityonline.com and the tube city almanac and we thank them for their support if you'd like to contribute please visit our website call us at 412-614-9659 or email us at tubecitytiger at gmail.com And now back to John Hare's 2009 Founders Day address at McKeesport Regional History and Heritage Center.
1: The Connolly-Kaufman partnership came to end in the mid-20s, but the two remained friends. A professor named Paul T. Nolan, who examined Connolly's works, says Mark infused his plays with the idea that life is, quote, hopeful and modest and tolerant. Connolly himself, according to those who knew him, personified those very qualities. Unlike Kaufman, who was driven to write, Mark was not compelled to be a typewriter every waking moment. This difference in work habits may have caused some friction between the two, as indicated in a remark made by Kaufman in 1934. In that year, a story by Charles Dickens, who had died in 1870, the story was syndicated in American newspapers and received wide notice. Kaufman at the time commented that, quote, Charles Dickens dead, writes more than Mark Connolly alive. Even Connolly's greatest success, The Green Pastures of 1930, was an adaptation of another writer's book rather than an original play. That said, it was a lyrical, entertaining showpiece that ran steadily for five years in New York and across the country. And it broke a major racial barrier by employing the first all Negro cast in a major musical or play on Broadway. It's the story of Old Testament uh, as interpreted by Louisiana farm workers. The actors speak the dialect of Negro field hands, accompanied by a choir singing spirituals and songs like When the Saints Come Marching In. Many African-American commentators agree that the dialect is authentic, but many also deride Connolly's play for embellishing the stereotyped image of African-Americans as simple uneducated folk, unequipped to take their place in modern society. Mark declared that he only intended to show the people searching for God in their own way. Although he wrote with a seriousness of purpose, the play was not an Amos and Andy, by the way. The work today seems hopelessly patronizing. Mark, however, made a lasting contribution in producing a play for an all-black cast. Of course, it was still produced by a white producer and written by a white writer. Like his father before him in McKeesport, in in that way, Mark broke a major color barrier. It's hard to say how, or even if, McKeesport contributed to Mark's growth as an artist. Milltown boys are usually thought of as writing milltown stories and plays, heavy on social realism, smoke and fire, environmental degradation, sweaty work, and squalid living conditions. You'll find none of that in Mark Connolly's writing. He preferred the comedic to the realistic, his early fascination with actors, singers, pitchmen, and circus performers crowded out glimpses of the raw side of McKeesport. In his memoirs, Voices Off Stage, he mentions National Tube on the first page, but never alludes to the mill or other factories again. Even though the Hotel White was located within two blocks of the Locust Street gate, Mark does not write of mill workers hurrying to and fro makes no comment on the lives of steelworker families, presents no descriptions of smoke and grime or immigrant ghettos or working class saloons or labor strife. The word union is not mentioned. Only one of Mark's plays had anything to do with a town resembling McKay was It was titled A Deep Dangled Tangled Wild Wood, co-authored by George S. Kaufman, first produced in 1923 and it ran for only about a dozen performances in New York. The fictional town is Millersville, located at the junction of the Little Harriet and Chippewa Rivers. The characters represent a narrow slice of the citizenry who have become vain and foolish as they prospered with the success of the main industry, a dye works, nothing to do with steel. The play is not believable, and Conley, in later years, urged against its showing. I knew very little about Connolly until the 1980s. While writing and the wolf finally came, I decided to list in a chapter on McKeesport some of the famous people who had come from our city. I didn't know much about Connolly and so I turned to his memoirs, Voices Off Stage. Here I learned for the first time that his father ran a hotel. So had my father in the McKeesporter Hotel, located across Fifth Avenue from the B&O Depot. It was in that block of buildings that was torn down during redevelopment to make way for the garage extending over Fifth Avenue. The Hotel White, according to Mark, also was located across the street from the B&O Depot. But he doesn't say which street. It could have been Fifth or Locust. There were enough similarities to make my heart flutter. Could Mark Conley, the famous playwright, and I have something as intimate as a business location in common? And so I read further into voices off stage. But Mark never clears up the matter, never says which street the the White was located on. Indeed, a sketch of the Hotel White, reproduced in the book, confuses the situation. It pictures the White as a two to three story building with the two upper floors extending across a row of street level shops, including a hotel restaurant and bar. My father's hotel, the McKees border, was a narrow six story building it had only a doorway entrance on 5th Avenue and stores climb, stairs climbing to the lobby. The main entrance was in the rear on Ringo Street, across from the main bus depot. I'm sure many of you standing at that bus depot would have looked straight across and seen that entrance. The building had stood there for decades under the name Clinton Hotel. My dad bought the business in 1947, remodeled the interior, and added a ground-level restaurant and bar, just inside the Ringo Street entrance and a basement-level cocktail lounge. The sketch of the Hotel White, so different from the, Mc- the Clinton or the McKees border, convinced me that the Hotel White must have stood across from the depot on Locust Street. In fact, there had been a small hotel at the corner of Locust and Lyle Boulevard during my boyhood. I thought it far more likely that the three-story white had grown into this place than the six-story Clinton on Fifth. But my hopes have been dashed. Mark Connolly and I had less in common than I'd hoped. Some years later, I did more research on Connolly. Traveled to Boston University, where his papers are archived. Unfortunately, the papers contain no mention of the Hotel White. But in 1999, while visiting Penn State's Paternal Library on another matter, I came across an old insurance map of McKeesport in the archives section, consisting of about three dozen sheets and drawn to large scale, it shows every existing structure in the city with addresses and business names of commercial buildings. In 1908, when the map was drawn, the occupant of 408 to 410 Fifth Avenue, directly across the street from the B&O Depot, was the Hotel White. This is precisely where, 40 years later, the McKeesporter Hotel stood at 408 to 410 Fifth Avenue. I remembered the address from letterheads on my dad's hotel stationery. The discovery put me at some pains to decide how to think about it. I did not want to be seen or to see myself as basking in a famous man's glow, and yet the coincidence was not uninteresting. I settled upon an ironic posture. Describing the map's revelations in my journal, I wrote, quote, now it turns out that the father of of McKeesport's greatest literary alumnus, owned and managed a hotel at the same address where, 40 years later, the father of McKeesport's shortest labor reporter (laughs) owned and managed a hotel. Mystery solved. Thank you.
0: You're listening to a 2009 speech by author and historian John Hare, delivered at McKeesport Regional History and Heritage Center. Hare died June 21st at the age of 84. You can find out more about his life and legacy at www.johnhoerr.com. And we'll be right
2: back. Support for this broadcast comes in part from the McKeesport Hospital Foundation. Since 1976, the foundation has addressed key concerns that affect our good health, as well as our education, social needs, recreation, safety, and security. The foundation partners with UPMC McKeesport and other agencies to eliminate barriers to all services for all residents of the Mon Valley. Visit mckhospitalfoundation.com or call 412-664-2590.
0: And now back to John Hare's 2009 Founders Day address at McKeesport Regional History and Heritage Center. That day, Hare took several questions from the audience. The first question was whether Hare, who was a nonfiction writer all of his life, found it hard to write his first fictional book, Monongahela Dusk. Well,
1: I had all of my memories to rely on to write about the, the look of McKeesport and surrounding areas. And I desperately wanted to unload my, my uh, small brain of those memory, get them on paper. So this was a chance. And I, I did want to write a story rather than write more, uh, another book about facts. And the Wolf finally came with 600 pages of facts and statistics and so forth. And I, in the end, I didn't believe it really um, uh, got to the bottom of the mystery of, uh, and I think it's a mystery, of uh, what happened to the steel industry in the Monongahela Valley. Uh, it's a mystery because there are so many facts going into it that one can't contain all of, the, all of them and put them into one sentence. Uh, so I wanted to write a story that would be mostly about people, but about people growing up in this place that had this interesting history, uh, uh, unfortunate post-history. Uh, so I did have trouble at first, Jason, when I set out and discovered that my journalism was really interfering with fiction writing because I was writing—I was still writing facts rather than rather than uh, emotional scenes. So it took me some time to rid the novel of all of those facts and wind up with a, a story about people. I constructed a plot that would last over a number of years, about twelve years, so I could show McKeithford going through various economic and social trends, and at the same time show some kind of uh, progress in uh, social relations inside McKeesport, social and political relations, what was the rise of unionism. Uh, and, uh, but I had no trouble uh, with the people once I thought of them who would inhabit this, this place because I had known many of them while living here.
0: Another question from the audience, this time asking whether Hare has considered what happened to his characters in the novel, Monongahela Dusk, after the events of the book.
1: Oh, different scenarios. Let's see. He, uh, he changes side and becomes a uh, an executive in the steel industry. Uh, no, um, that doesn't sound right, does it? Um, he, uh, say uh, more realistically, I suppose, he begins moving westward, thinking he will eventually arrive at California where his wife and daughter are. And he takes various kinds of jobs um, in, the, in the, the coal mining industry, for example. So he goes back to coal, not necessarily underground. He can strip mine coal. He's a skilled operator of all kinds of machinery. Um, I don't picture him being a salesman, uh, but he works his way back across across the country as people were still able to do in the, uh, in the 1950s, I believe yeah, that's it would have been that decade, and eventually reaches California. And then I'll leave it on another brink as to whether he and Dolly or rather his wife get back together. I'm not sure. Um, she's, a, she's a very strong-minded woman and uh, independent, and by that time, she may have decided that uh, remaining a single mother is what is the best course for her for her. I'm not sure at this point, but I did like did want to. Uh, signal that what happened to joe uh was a was a shattering blow to his uh, his ego and what he thought of himself and what he thought he should be doing with his life and if i if i left that impression then i i think i think i succeeded now what he would continue to do to do after that is is uh, really up in the air i'm not quite sure
0: A reader wants to know how people can tell real people from the Mon Valley with the fictional characters in the novel. Uh,
1: Even though I've given them fictional names, I've uh, based a number of these characters on people who were, say, officials in McKeesport uh, in, say, the 1940s. And um, my story demands that they do one thing, which may be... I tried to follow through on the spirit of what I thought these characters would have done in real life but I didn't give them their real names because of course it is fictional and I wouldn't I disapprove of the idea of, of ascribing acts to real people when you don't know if in fact they thought that way or really did such a thing but I think in spirit the way i characterized some of the uh, politicians in particular in the sport in the 1940s were in fact the way they would have acted, I believe that I can't say for sure, and I recognize that leaves the McKeesport, um, um, uh, a person in Sport who knows a lot about the town, leaves him in or her in a sort of a dilemma. Who are these people, and did they, is he trying to confuse me? And uh, I admit that, yeah. But it's uh, look uh, look upon it as a story about a of a town that you do not know. <laughs> Uh, except for the uh, the landmarks, all I've done is uh, add more, add to the confusion. I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> These are good questions. I appreciate them very much. There is a gentleman back here.
0: Another question from the audience for John Hare. A listener wants to know more about the life of Mark Connolly, McKeesport native who won the Pulitzer Prize for drama.
1: He died in 1980 in New York City, where he had lived for several years. I've read newspaper stories in the in the Daily News about various trips back to the city. In the mid-30s, I believe he came. In fact, I know he did. In the mid-60s, he came here. And in fact, I, I think he visited the Board Little Theater as it existed on, where was it? Uh, Corson Street? Uh, Jenny Lynn, yeah, up around there. Um, he visited them and gave them encouragement and, um, and said he liked the old city even though he didn't know much about it. Um, and I. I don't know if he returned after the '60s, but he didn't disown the city. In other words,
0: finally, a question about John Hare's own reading habits. Does he read fiction, and if so, what are some recent books that he can recommend?
1: Yeah, I am a fiction reader, and uh, although I try not to read too many, too much fiction while I'm writing fiction at the same time, I don't want to be. I don't want to be influenced. I just ripped the thing off my coat. I try not to read too much fiction while I'm writing fiction, so I'm not unduly influenced by the other writer's style. I find myself to be very uh, susceptible to—I'm very susceptible to um, to uh, being a, a copycat. And when I write somebody who has a with a strong writing style, uh, like Hemingway, for as, a, as an outstanding example, uh, I find myself writing just like him. It was cold. The wine was good. The women were good. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, even though I believe all that, uh, um, so what have I read recently? That um, now you this comes up against a uh, a problem of mine, which is a loss of memory, um, especially under pressure. And um, I can tell you this: when I read Ragtime. By um, Dr. Rowe, yes. Many years ago, I must confess, he, he showed me something that I decided I really wanted to do, which was to put some real people into into my stories if I were going to write historical fiction. And although I don't have a lot of real people in my stories, uh, there are one or two, like Phil Murray, the union leader. And um, I just think it makes us uh, history fiction, historical fiction, more... Um, more more close to the truth even though you you, as i said before i i do not like the idea of ascribing thoughts or i would never give the guy quotes that in any way show him to be a a vile villainous character uh when in fact i'm not sure if he was uh what i can't remember other books that i've read recently though and i read that one 20 years ago for heaven's sakes i'm sorry jason um i read an english novelist named uh, pat barker uh, three or four of her novels were outstanding novels about World War I and the people who uh, fought in the war and emerged uh, mentally damaged, emotionally damaged. Uh, she was an outstanding writer about that period. I'm not so sure if she's done well recently or not. Um, there was a novel by, uh, discovered a couple of years ago among old papers by a, um, a French writer, uh, and the novel was called um, Dash Blank Suite. Uh, Suite about the Nazi occupation of France in in the, in the early 40s when she was still living. Later, she and her husband were they were Jewish. They were carted off by the Gestapo and put to death in prison camps or concentration camps. Okay, thank you so much, everybody, for coming.
0: That was the 2009 Founders Day address at the McKeesport Regional History and Heritage Center, delivered by historian and journalist John Hare. Hare died June 21st at the age of 84. My apologies for the quality of the recording. You can find out more about his life and legacy at www.johnhaer.com. You've been listening to Two Rivers 30 Minutes, copyright 2015, Tube City Community Media, Incorporated. Opinions expressed on this program are not those of Tube City Community Media, Incorporated, WEDO Radio, 810 Incorporated, or those of AM Guys LLC, WZUM 1550. Listener support makes this program possible. If you'd like to make a tax-deductible contribution or find out how you can underwrite this program, please visit our website at TubeCityOnline.com and click on the donate link. You can also get a free subscription to this program and other podcasts at our website using Apple's iTunes or Stitcher.com. If you've got a question or comment, we hope you'll write to us. Our address is Tube City Community Media Incorporated, P.O. Box 94, Keysport PA 15134. You can email us at Tube City at gmail.com or call us at area code 412 614 9659. And you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Tube City Online. Bye.